Okay, so talking of Warners and talking of the DC franchise, we've got a bit of casting news. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which, what, what were we segueing into? Hawkman. Oh, yes. Okay, start that again. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 38 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And talking of film geeks, I'm one, and so is Andy Meekin over here, geek extraordinaire. And Lee Ford over <laughs> here. <laughs> the Geek Squad, coming to a cinema near you. That could be a really bad 60s style spy drama, couldn't it? <laughs> you, you're just going to set me off now on, on uh, down a road. There was a show on Netflix, an Australian thing, and for the life of me, I can't remember, I'll try and remember by the end of the programme, which was this sort of mock... 60s spy series in which they were trying to track Hitler down who'd survived the war and it got everything right it was elements of the champions uh, man from uncle danger five uh, that, that gaudy what was it called danger five yeah that was it I think I was the only person who ever watched it <laughs> much like... love for, for danger five <laughs> I, I have some memories of that one yeah it was oh, very, thank very goodness bizarre, it wasn't, wasn't it <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know if I'd seen it or it was a fever dream. I know oh, I'd I, seen it. I, that's, a, that's a topic that I always get round to is like there's so many things throughout my life that I thought, did I dream this? Yeah, yeah I've had that. <laughs> anyway, Andy, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, we, we, we had a really good uh, weekend end last night on the MTOS group. Talk about it was black fantastic. And white I, I dropped in. It was good to talk about like black, like the classic era, like silence comedies to you know your silent dramas and everything. And there's quite a few films now made it onto my list of I really need to get around to watching all of these as well. This list is getting ridiculous. You know, folks, if you've not joined in with uh, what Andy calls MTOS, you should. It's on Twitter. How how do you find it, Andy? Just just give me a very quick breakdown of of what you do. So it's movie talk on Sunday, MTOS, and. Every week, sometime during the week, from my own website, filmfile.uk, I'll post out 10 questions that are going to be covered on the Sunday. And starting at 8 p.m. on the Sunday evening, that's 8 p.m. British summertime at the moment, or GMT when it switches back to GMT. So adjust it for where you are in the world. All you have to do is do a search for the hashtag MTOS, and you'll be able to follow the conversation. And get involved. And if you if you make sure that you hashtag MTOS all your answers, everyone who's following it can see what you've answered and then respond and chat away. And the whole idea is just to discuss around films. You know, we've all got our own opinions and we respect the fact that we don't always see eye to eye. And there's quite a lot of that last night where we didn't always agree on things. But there's a lot of like, OK, I see where you're coming from. Don't agree with you. But, you know, I can understand your point of view. It's a very respectful part of the film twitter community that's good it's just something you don't actually hear very often when in regards to talking about twitter yeah respectful. it can be a very toxic environment on twitter at times it so can. having this little niche corner every sunday where we're just all having fun and having a bit of banter about films works a treat it, it's a highlight of the weekend sounds quite sad but that's fine that's the highlight of my weekends it's good fun one and a half hours on twitter fantastic so at uh, this point in the program, Andy has been trawling the web. He's almost like that hunter guy from the first Jurassic Park movie. He's moving through the foliage of news and information to bring you in this item that we call the news. Andy, what news do you have for us? Well, I'm going to start off with a bit of um, 
local as in across the UK news. So we've been talking big style about Sorkin's trial of the Chicago 7 in various news things over the past few months. We are both huge fans of Sorkin and the cast in this has well and truly sold us on it. The story looks beautifully Sorkin courtroom drama. Well, it's got a limited cinema release in the UK, which starts on, well, from Thursday the 1st. So check your local cinemas and see whether or not one near to you is showing them. Now, most of these will be independent cinemas. So it'll be your small little indie theatres. So venture to there if you've got nothing else. However, one small chain has managed to um, strike a deal with Netflix. And that is... fantastic. That is the light. Brilliant. That's really good news for cinema goers. That it's really great. is I mean, a it's, positive. It's more or less future-proofing. The light have set this up because you can't rely on the 12-week window going forwards. That's a thing of the past now. We've spoken about this multiple times. So to set up a deal with a streaming service to show their features two weeks before they go onto their service, it's really future-proofing. It's getting ready for the new way that cinema will operate and distribution will operate. And yeah, I'm, it makes me proud to be a part of the light company Fantastic. to know that we're getting this in. There's only a, a handful of theatres of the light across the UK, but if one's near you, head over there and hashtag save our cinemas. And we'll be bringing you a review of that film next week. Definitely. For certain. What else have you got? Okay. So I, I, I promise not to rant. Oh, I, I can feel a Zack <laughs> Snyder moment coming on. Like a, some, I promise to just tell this as it's being reported and try tell it like it rant, is. Okay, I can't 100% say they I'm going to stick to the script, but here we go. As they used to say in the Dragnet TV show, just the facts. So, first of all, the reshoots of Zack Snyder's Justice League HBO four-parter. It's been confirmed that Henry Cavill will not be taking part in them. So there's no more additional Superman footage to be shot. However, we also know that Ray Fisher is involved in them. And as we know from previous reports, that Zack had a lot of love for Ray Fisher's cyborg character. Don't know why he's the least interesting DC character ever made. Yeah, from, from what we know, Cyborg was was kind of the linchpin character, the instrumental character, yeah. bringing everybody together, weren't they, originally? He, he's the one that Zack Snyder basically calls the heart of the film which we never got to see in the Joss Whedon version of it because it was all of his scenes were cut. Well, he's going back for some reshoots. Junkie XL is finishing off the score for this already completed movie. Now, the score was changed to a Danny Elfman one on the Joss Whedon one, so it's going to be interesting to see what Junkie XL's actual score is because reports say that it's, it's an absolutely brilliant score and he's doing little tweaks because the reshoots obviously mean that his score doesn't perfectly match at the moment. I liked Jim Kexel's scores, but I, I've got to be honest, I liked what Danny Elfman did with the little nods to the John Williams Superman score and, and his own Batman score made a little appearance in that. I thought that was yeah. that that was a lovely little touch. Yeah, he, he did a nice little nuance um, yeah. within his new score to just like reference earlier iconic scores, basically. Uh, the additional cost to get all this in the can, this finished film made for a four-part TV series, is now circling around $70 million. Whoa. Which, I don't know about about you, but this really, really is starting to feel like a real waste of money to stoke someone's ego. Because $70 million, I mean, you could have 10 Blue Mouse films for that. Or we could have a... You, big, could, have, you we, could have 70 of my films for that. <laughs> we could have a Deadpool sequel. We could have a Dread sequel. We could have... You get the picture... 
70 million, you could either make a really a load of small budget films or you could make one mid mid range budget film and have a whole new story. And it feels to me that this is this is just escalating because this was only reported as 30 million two months ago. Now it's 70 million. Where's it going to stop? Well, it has to stop somewhere because aren't they now looking at a release date for this year? It'll be next year. Right. 2021. Uh, they haven't got the specific date. But, you know, obviously Warners and HBO are hoping to see a significant spike in subscribers when it launches. And if they don't see it, that's going to be 70 million that has just been basically rinsed away. Flittered, one might yeah. say. I mean, the reshoots, etc. whilst we mockingly say like, oh, this film was supposedly finished and in the can. Yeah, oh, split it into four parts means there's got to be little interlinking moments getting filmed. So I do get that. I do mock it a lot that it, it clearly wasn't finished. And it wasn't. There was a lot of work left to be done to make it cinematic. But the reshoots are not part of that. They're more part of the piecing it all together and making it flow. And hopefully making it a one-off story. Because that's what some of the reports were suggesting. Is that the reason why it had to get redone for the Joss Whedon version. Was because it didn't have a complete story. So talking of the Joss Whedon version. Segwaying into... Uh, another story about that. Yeah, we've reported on the uh, Ray Fisher allegations and the investigation going into that. Well, some opposing viewpoints about the onset issues have come out via a leaked email, which I'll stress to add that there's no name attached to this email. So it may or may not be authentic. It might be some spin. It might be some fakery. No idea. But what it suggests is kind of like what we were hinting at a couple of months ago when we talked about something similar. Whedon gets a lot of flack for the film. He gets a lot of flack for the outcome of it. And obviously he's getting all the flack from Ray Fisher and all his supporters about how he was on set. The email states that Whedon faced unreal expectations and deadlines from the execs almost immediately when he took it over, which we've already said that, yeah, he had a lot of pressure to get this film done as quick as possible and get out. He also was met with a toxic set environment that you wouldn't imagine. And it specifies that the cast and crew had worked with Zack Snyder throughout the production and some of them on previous films. And so they were very close to Snyder and his way of th thinking. Then Josh was just thrust in here and told, fix this, do this. So apparently he got a lot of flack from the cast and crew saying, this isn't your film, stop changing things. And every time that he wants to make a change, he just got reminders like, yeah, well, this isn't your film, mate, so stop it. And so something broke in him. Um, he had a bad experience on the Avengers, which has been widely reported. And it was one of the reasons why after Age of Ultron, he stepped away from the Marvel properties. He, he couldn't cope with that kind of level. But on those films, he had the support of the cast and crew around him who were all working towards the same thing. It seems that with the Justice League, it was a completely different experience. Like I say, we don't know whether this email is valid or not, but it does give an understandable reason as to why his behaviour would have been so different to what people who worked with him on things like Firefly and Buffy encountered. Because in there, he was surrounded by people who knew him, knew his style, and he considered friends. Uh, so talking of DC, talking of Warners, we've got a bit of um, casting news on Black Adam. Yes, uh, we already know that it's Rock the Dwayne Johnson who's going to be leading Black Adam. And we already know that it's not just going to be Black Adam as a bad guy. He's going to be an anti-hero character involved with the Justice Society of America, which Noah Centino will be playing Atom Smasher. Well, now they've cast the role of Hawkman and the role has been given to Aldous Hodge, 
who you remember from The Invisible Man. Yep, and One Night in Miami, I believe he was in as well. Yeah, I've heard good things about that. I've not seen it yet. Yeah, I've same I've really heard good things about that. Uh, they're still yet to cast Dr. Fate and Cyclone, but Hawkman, for those who don't know, is one of a pair of ancient Egyptian lovers who are destined to be constantly reincarnated through time. And the contemporary version is a character named Carter Hall, an archaeologist right. who's turned adventurer. If you've watched any of the DC TV shows from the CW, that Hawkman was actually a key part of Legends of Tomorrow, was it? Yeah, that's right. I and mean, they did it very well. They they, they covered it. They also cast people of colour, which I thought was really interesting for that, and, and as, as they should yeah. for somebody who's an, an Egyptian descendant. And it, it makes sense to have Hawkman like, with this backstory within the Black Adam thing, because the Black Adam backstory, he, he was a slave of ancient Egypt who was granted power and rose up to fight oppression. And so you can see there's got, I've got suspicion that this is going to cause some conflict between a few of the characters. So yeah, I, interesting. I'm more and more excited with Black Adam as more and more news comes out. I mean, I know you weren't sold on it at the start. No, but you're right. I'm exactly like you. The more that's sort of uh, have, have been leaked out, the more I'm getting an idea of the plot, the more interested I am in it. And I, I'm, I'm slightly disappointed because I think Black Adam is still the perfect foe for the first Shazam movie as opposed to Dot Savannah, but yeah. uh, we have we are where we are with it. But yeah, I think it's sounding more and more interesting. Over at Marvel. And, Ooh, some uh, Marvel news? Uh, well, we, again, I'll, I'll avoid the rant. Uh, so Disney um, have moved pretty much everything on their release slate. So Black Widow has now moved to May next year. That means that it's a year after its initial release date that wow. it will be coming out which also moves Eternals to November next year. Shang-Chi is July next year. But in addition to the Marvel products that they've been moving, West Side Story, that was originally supposed to be December this year, it was supposed to be a big Christmas release. That's now yeah, that's December. the big Spielberg remake. That's December 2021. Death on the Nile, which was pretty much the only film left in the middle of October, which cinemas in the UK were looking forward to like doing good money on, because cinemas in the UK did great money on Made on the Orient Express. And a good well, film it was. Well, that's moved to late December this year. So we're still getting it, fingers crossed, this year. What annoys me about the death on the Nile? I mean, all these moves are taking place because of the US market. And whilst reports are saying that LA has planned to be reopening within the next couple of weeks, it still leaves New York and San Francisco locked down, which it's a huge chunk of the film-going audience. It's why Tenet hasn't performed very well there. But Tenet has performed great internationally. Murder on the Orient Express, when that was released, it made over 70% of its money on international release. So Death on the Nile, why not just release it internationally and then give it to America later? It's this global thinking that Disney seemed to be stuck with, that they can't yeah. get out of this like, well, actually some films would work better if you split the release dates. I read a, a, an interesting piece on uh, Bleeding Cool over the uh, last few days and it was talking about tenant that it's it's uh, not done particularly well in the, in the u.s and it talks about the harsh test as a blockbuster theatrical exclusive blockbuster uh, is now on the front line they said september 6th release yeah. uh, of the film was marred uh, difficult as cinemas would and on a local and national levels were slow to recover uh, but they talk about this as being kind of the end of cinemas and using Bill and Ted as a reference that, that it opened in cinemas and on uh, on VOD. I, I think part of the fact is 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 exactly what you're saying. It, un it underscores exactly what you're saying. If we stagger like we used to international releases, then the US can play catch up yeah. and we'll get those films 
I don't honestly believe that the, the lack of success for tenant in the US is down to the nature of, of, of just the virus and, 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 and shutdowns. I think it's it wasn't the right film to reopen cinemas with. There was a lot of pressure, as you know, yeah. that, that forced it into cinemas. And, you know, it's, it, was, it was met with mixed reviews. If you want to talk about a mixed reviews, listen to ours. Yeah. I think they should have opted for, for Bond. They should have opted for Black Widow and, and had that as a much more uh, easier run into getting people back into the cinema. So I, I don't think that Tenet was necessarily the right film to release. And I don't think it, its failure at the US was, was really down to it having an international release. I don't think it was the right film. Uh, Free Guy and Soul have both managed to stick their current release dates. Uh, Free Guy being December and Soul late November. Now, Soul, we've speculated that it might it would go to Disney+. Plus. Well, the odds were that it was looking very much like that, wasn't it? Yeah. The fact that it's not now, and there's not even any speculation about it, suggests that Mulan didn't really pay off as well as Disney hoped yeah. on video on demand. And also, what we hinted at last week, the culture aspects of this film are far too sensitive and will cause a political issue for the company. Because Soul is the first black-led Pixar film focusing on an aspect of black culture and if they had sunk this onto home streaming in the year of Black Lives Matter, I think the backlash would have crippled them. Interesting, interesting. So I, I think I think it's really good that they're sticking the landing with this one. Good. I'm hoping they stay the course because I think we all need we need something family friendly to lead us into yeah. December. And a yeah. Pixar film, you can't get more family friendly than a Pixar film. Uh, speaking of family friendly, from uh, the Warner Stable. So the remake of Peter Pan, called Peter Pan and Wendy, the live-action version, has cast Tinkerbell. Yeah, now await volumes of, of negative chat on, on Twitter, but they cast a, a woman of colour. Yep, Yara Shahidi. She's going to be playing Tink. Yeah, she's from uh, Gronish, and it's the first time that a person of colour has filled this role. Now, strangely, I've not seen a lot of backlash online. Okay, because there was backlash over Little Mermaid. Yeah, I, I don't think people are that bothered when it's a fairy being changed because um you know it's a it's a fairy so <laughs> and everyone's image of tinkerbell is the 1950s peter pan film yeah i mean every interpretation from that point has always looked similar but th this seems to have been quite well embraced generally i'm sure that somewhere out there there are the basement dwellers bashing angrily on their keyboards but yeah no one's paying attention to them this time but she joins jude law who's playing hook Alexander Excellent. Maloney and Ever Anderson as the leads and David Lowry directing. And he gave us Pete's Dragon remake. So Which I is fantastic. I feel this is in fantastic. safe hands. Yeah. And finally, on the, on the news from the Marvel stable and the Disney stable. So there's uh, the news of Nick Fury getting his own spin-off TV series. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Nick Fury in the movies, is now looking to uh, make the move to Disney+. Plus. Yeah. in a TV series about the adventures of Nick Fury, which I can't wait for. Perfect. Isn't this exactly what everyone wanted Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to be? Yeah. Now, you know, in the in the nearly 10 years since the Avengers came out and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, popped up, which I enjoyed. I must be honest, I really yeah. enjoyed. You know, we, we now have the rise of Disney Plus where we can afford to pay, you know, huge amounts to get Samuel L. Jackson to come appear in a TV series. But you're right. It's, it's got to be, it's got to be a shield kind of espionage things. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I'm excited for pretty much all of the Disney Plus Marvel content that is in the pipeline because I think that it looks like they're being creative and fun whilst also, 
feeding into the films going forwards. Yeah, so, and they look like they look like um, movies as opposed to TV yeah. series. Uh, Mr. Robot veteran uh, Kyle Bradstreet is on board to oversee it. He's the showrunner on it. And yep. that's about all we know at this moment in time. So let's move on. So Miles Teller and Chris Hemsworth have joined Joseph Kaczynski's new film for Netflix called Spiderhead. He'll be just finishing off and waiting to release a Top Gun sequel. Yep. His next film, Spiderhead, is adapted from a George Sanders short story. And it's set in the near future where convicts are offered to volunteer for medical experiments to reduce their sentences. That old chestnut. Yes. Two prisoners sign up and are tested with emotional altering drugs, which force them to grapple with past demons. Uh, the script was made by the people behind Zombieland and Deadpool, Rhett Reese and Paul Vernick. Okay. I've got a lot of love for Kaczynski's style of sci-fi. Yeah, he does, he does do really big canvas movies. Yeah, Miles Teller and Chris Hemsworth are two decent names to add into there. So this is one that I'll be keeping my eye on as production starts. Cool. And talking of production. Yes. M. Night Shyamalan has given a title to I'm glad you said film. that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had the pleasure of meeting the guy, so you have to learn his name. He's given a title to his next film, which is set to release in July next year, and that's called Old. Now, we don't know much about it. Uh, there's a, just a photograph of him on set holding a clapperboard with the word Old written on it. But what we do know is that it's inspired by a French graphic novel called Sandcastle. That's yep. all we seem to know. Yeah, the Sandcastle, uh, Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters were the creators behind that. And the graphic novel tells the story of a bunch of folk who are unable to escape a secluded beach after a dead body is found there. There's a mysterious secret surrounding time which prevents them from escaping. The film's not going to be a direct adaptation. Instead, it's it's inspired by... Apparently, Shyamalan received a copy of the graphic novels for a Father's Day gift and fell in love with it immediately and so was inspired to do stories drawn from it. Uh, but he's packed out the cast with names such as Thomas N. McKenzie, Aaron Pierce, Eliza Scanlon, Gail Garcia Bernal, who I don't feel that we see enough of these days. Uh, R- Rufus Sewell, Ken Leung and Alex Wolfe. Some great names in there. I'm excited to see it. I mean, I know he gets a lot of flack. I know some people he's a great at Shyamalan, but he's creative. I mean, when when like I said, I had a chance to meet him when I was down at a special screening of Split a good few years ago, and he spoke then of how he's gone back to just making ideas into films rather than going for big blockbusters and big budgets. He likes to yeah. keep it small and tight, and he will, he likes to just be creative and come up with something a bit fresh and a bit different. So I'm, I'm excited to see what he does with it. Yeah. Hey, did you know that George Clooney has stepped back behind the camera? Has he? What's he doing yeah, now? Yeah, he's, he's, he's got a film that's uh, due for Netflix called The Midnight Sky. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic tale where he plays a character called Augustine, uh, a lonely scientist in the Arctic, as he races to stop Sully, played by Felicity Jones, and a fellow astronauts from returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. Uh, Mark L. Smith wrote the adaptation of Lily Brooke Dalton's acclaimed novel Good Morning Midnight, and Clooney has rounded up a heck of a class, including one of my favourites, Kyle Chandler, who's one of those actors who you see in everything and is just so darn good, but you never remember who he is. And that's due to hit Netflix this December. Nice. What, what was the last film that he... Suburbicon was his last direction. Wasn't yeah, it? which didn't quite work, but again, always interesting as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, yeah... He, Ever since he gave us Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, I've always been intrigued to see what he delivers directorial. I mean, I love him as an actor. I think he can give a lot to a project, but yeah. knowing that he's behind the scenes directing as well. I mean, he gave us Good Night and Good Luck, which has to be one of the which best films fantastic. of the past two decades. An awesome film. 
absolutely brilliant. So that's one to look forward to. Again, another Netflix film. There's a lot of Netflix stuff at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, I'm going to give you another one. Go on then. I know you were a big fan the first time round back in uh, 1991, and that's Father of the Bride. Yeah, I've, Steve I've, Martin. I've got some love for Father of the Bride. Maybe not the sequel. I wasn't too enamoured with the sequel. Okay, well, you're going to have a threequel, and okay. it's, a, it's part of what we're calling the quarantine stream. So... Uh, <laughs> films that uh, have been born due to uh, the, due to a quarantine so basically it's coming to uh, uh, Netflix and it's all done as a zoom meeting <laughs> all the cast are back Steve Martin Diane Keaton Kira Culkin Kimberly Williams Paisley and George Newborn and this time it's Matty played by Culkin taking the spotlight with a big announcement and some special guests flesh out the two youngest members of the Banks family and there you have it clever a bit of clever filmmaking uh, that's gone straight to uh, straight to Netflix. No that one sounds that quite sounds quite intriguing. I mean that this filming over Zoom seems to be a bit of a fad, and we'll there'll be more on that later in one of the reviews that I've got for you this week. So as well as the reunion, there's also going to be a Father of the Bride reboot, and of course, which in itself, as I said before, is a remake that originally starred uh, Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor. However, the new version. Uh, according to Collider, has bedtime stories and Race to Witch Mountain writer Matt Lopez working on a more, well, should we say, diverse reboot. From what I hear, predominantly Hispanic cast. Oh, so it's all fathers and all brides over the, over the it moment. It is, all over the place. Uh, Borat's sequel has got a title. Yes, yeah, so I've heard. <laughs> and giggled too. And boy, what a title. Go for uh, it. Playing on the title that they had for the original film, it's a yet another really long, ridiculous title. And it's Borat. Gift of Pornographic Monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> now, all that we know about the film is that it apparently sees Borat putting on disguises to conduct interviews with people, which has to be the most meta thing Sasha Baron Cohen has ever done. Yeah. It won't surprise me. Early this year, there was the scenes of the rally that he masqueraded as a singer of a right-wing hillbilly band. And I'm wondering if this was actually part of the filming for this. And this yeah. is one of the like, pranks that Borat was created. This is Sasha Baron Cohen playing Borat, playing Sasha Baron Cohen, playing someone else. This is weird. I don't, I, <laughs> and it's all because um, Borat is so popularly well-known now that there was no way he could prank people as Borat. Yeah, yeah, so he's pranking people as Borat, pranking people as someone else. Oh, I, I am so on board with this film. I, I have already got my mankini out ready to wear. I will quickly move on because that image is now burning into my eyes and I need to pour bleach into them. <laughs> Cruise in space. Oh, I feel like yes. I need to say that like pigs in space. Cruise in space. Uh, we spoke about this multiple times. It's the Doug Lyman, Tom Cruise film that he's going to be shooting out in space. It's got a launch date now. Oh, so we did that. They are going to start filming clearly in October next year, 2021. Right. Because the Space Shuttle Almanac have confirmed that a SpaceX Crew Dragon Axiom Taurus flight is booked for launch in that month with Cruise and Lyman on board. Whether that's okay. just them going up and testing the waters and seeing what's possible, but it's definitely a start for the production in some way, shape or form. Which kind of makes sense. He's got to finish uh, uh, Mission Impossible. I'm assuming he's got a heck of a lot of training to do to just to go into space. Yeah. And probably so as Doug Lyman. Yeah. Uh, uh, and off he goes. Interesting. We'll keep you posted when we know more like a title. Um, and talking of titles, it appears that Avatar 2 and Avatar 3 have, uh, have completed most of their filming. Yeah, according to Cameron, it, it's either finished or right at the very end of filming. Now, this film has been delayed more times than New Mutants. 
And the last delay was because of the COVID lockdowns. But it was one of the first films to get back to reshooting about two months ago. And the the release date was pushed to December 22, which now Cameron has got everything in the can that he needs to do. They can start on the post-processing and the effects work. He's not planning a holiday, though, once this is all done. It's not. I think he needs one. Uh, because it, once he's finished putting the final work on these on the next film, he will then finish the final work on part three and then go straight into production for the fourth and fifth films. It just begs the question, does the world need Avatar films? Because if you ask people, they're a bit like, they're a bit like the nickelback <laughs> of, of movies. Everyone likes Everybody's got a little bit that they <laughs> like, but they never say anything good about them. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, that. It's all going to be down to how the first trailers impact. And Cameron is very clever at, like, he can have people being snooty and sneery about something when it's in production. But then as soon as that first trailer lands, everyone's on board. I mean, we've had it happen way back when Titanic. Mm. Titanic had such a troubled production that everyone was, like, knives out, ready to kill this. And then the trailers landed and went, oh, hang on a minute, let's watch this. Yeah, the world were ready to kill it straight away. Drowned it at birth, so to speak. I think if anyone can pull this off and make us suddenly go, well, actually, yeah, we do need another Avatar film. I think Cameron's the man who can do it. He's obviously confident enough because he's got like, you know, four films in the pipeline. I've still got love for Avatar, mainly because I refuse to watch it on home video. I refuse to watch a home release of it. The only times that I've ever seen this is at the cinema and when it got reissued at the cinema for special screenings. And I've enjoyed it every time that I've done it. It's funny. I watched it again. I watched it with the child. Who uh, we had to watch it on Disney Plus, and um, I've only ever seen it at the cinema, and wasn't wasn't that interested. But once it started playing, I really immersed myself back into it and enjoyed it. It's got a lot of faults. Yeah, it, it's it's got a, a plot that's too small for the for the film that it is because it's basically it's Pocahontas dances with wolves in space. But yeah. it, he does it so well with such bravado filmmaking. But I'm wondering if part of that bravado filmmaking that we we're all very excited about is now a little bit passé. Yeah. Well, we'll find out when we start seeing some footage, I guess. And just a quick roundup of two small bits of information to finish off the news. So Lady Killers is getting a 4K restoration. One of Can't the, wait. Brilliant. One film. of the hundreds of films that are getting the 4K restoration, but what a film to get it. And yeah, and why not? This will be a treat to see on the screens. I'm hoping cinemas will be doing special screenings of I'll it, go. like they've been doing with a lot of the classics that have been restored. And again, with Netflix and the Resident Evil animated series has... Well, it's been reported as though it was accidentally leaked, but there was was footage out there. And as a result, people are being able to view it, see what to expect from it. And it's looking quite juicy. I'm quite looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, because it can't be anything that can be better than the uh, the Resident Evil films that we had. So looking forward to that one. Apologies to Paul W.S. Anderson uh, for upsetting you there, but your films were a bit stinky. Yeah. Anyway, and that's the news. And that's the news. So if you're a fan of the show and we're a fan of bringing you the show, you can uh, hit that subscribe button and leave a review. We're always interested to know what you think about us and uh, any comments or even any suggestions, please let us know. So you can do that by going either to our um, Twitter site, which is... At Filmfile UK. Or you can now find us on Instagram and just see what a couple of good-looking guys we are. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you can see us in our Devil T-shirts from our sponsor. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, I have been uh, um, setting a challenge for Andy to see films which, remarkably, he's not had a chance to see. Uh, and last week's film, well, left me gobsmacked because I, it's right up Andy's alley. And I am so, so surprised. You never got to see the 2015 Sicario. 
So the cartels in Mexico are your specialty. What do you work for? Nothing will make sense to your American ears. You will doubt everything that we do. Somebody say a prayer for me. To kill me on Friday. Bury me on Sunday. Mow for me Monday. Then you gotta live in cold. Welcome to Waters. Sicario. Written by Taylor Sheridan, directed by Denis Villeneuve, starred out Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, and Josh Brolin. And it's a film that follows a principled FBI agent, played by Blunt, who was enlisted by a government task force to bring down the leader of a powerful and brutal Mexican drug cartel. It's an absolutely fantastic thriller that not only, I think, changed the way that thrillers look, it made Villeneuve into a, into a blockbuster director, uh, an amazing cast. And Andy, I love it. Please tell me that you loved it too. This was a, a strange oversight for me. I mean, considering the right from prisoners onwards, I have adored Villeneuve as a director. It's bizarre that I completely missed this one. It is. And what I'm going to say is that I didn't know who the cinematographer was going into this. But within five minutes, straight away, I was like punching the air going, Deacons! This has got to be Deacons! So I looked on and I was like, it's Deacons because you had nighttime shots that you can see everything. He has a skillful mastery and the combination of Deacons with Villeneuve. Why did I miss this film? And that was the start of their working relationship. What an absolutely perfect film. The cast are engaging. The characters are well-rounded. Aside from maybe Daniel Kaluuya's character, who is just kind of there and feels somewhat wasted, especially given what a really good actor he is. Yeah. He's kind of sidelined a bit too much. But Benicio Del Toro is, is on fire. He delivers possibly one of the standout roles of his career. A character that skirts both sides of morality. He's absolutely perfect in it. And as soon as this film finished, I wanted to start watching it again. It hit me so much. It just doesn't slow down. You hit the ground running at the start. It's hard-edged, very dark. And the the tension, There's the sequence of the extraction scene um, section from Juarez and that whole going across the Mexican border oh, and then the coming back. Unbelievably uh, tense. I, I was struggling to breathe by the time it was the coming back and they're on the bridge and there's all the, the, the traffic jam has slowed everything down. It was tense, well shot, beautifully directed. This is such a good film and I'm, I'm really disappointed with myself that I didn't get to see this on the big screen because whilst it was stunned me on the small screen, Deacon cinematography. I cannot go on about Deacons enough. The guy is just an absolute, absolute blessing. He's a, he's a complete artist. I mean, from for the standalone shots. I mean, you look to to Blade Runner, you look to this film, and of course, you look to um, to, to the Jesse James film with the with the train heist scene, all, all shot yeah. with natural light. He, he's just an uh, an amazing artist. This is this is it's a great film. I'm so glad you like it. So Sicario is the Spanish word for hitman. A screenplay by Taylor Sheridan, and he sees this as the first installment in a, in a neo-Western trilogy exploring crime on modern-day American frontiers. So there is a sequel, which we'll, we'll mention a little bit on. Emily Blunt yeah. is just absolutely amazing in it, the heart and soul of the film. Um, but there are just so many good performers. You mentioned Del Toro, you mentioned Josh Brolin, who's got, to some extent, not an awful lot to do in this film, He's but he is the... Um, he is the the jaw of the film, if I want of a better term. He's you know he's, he's he's the tough man that holds it all together. It's such a fantastic film, 
um, did amazingly well at the box office and amazing critical reception. And, and of course, there were the Oscar nominees for for Deakins, which he didn't win, Best Original Score, Best Sound Editing, uh, Best Supporting Cast in the BAFTAs, uh, and Best Cinematography and Best Film Music. He did have a sequel, Sicario Day of the Salado, which is worth seeing. It likes the class of this film. I remember reading, uh, reading up afterwards and Villeneuve wasn't available. No, I wish he was. That's the downside. And the film suffers somewhat by not having his involvement. Yeah, but it's still worth seeing. And and now that you've seen this, I would go along and see it. It, it opens up the story somewhat, opens up more of the characters. Yeah. Of course, everything after this would be a slight disappointment. But it is a classic, tense thriller of the like that, we, that we're just not used to seeing. It's brutal. It, it's it's hard-edged. It, it feels dangerous. You feel the intimacy of the danger all the way through. It is a fantastic, fantastic film. Absolutely fantastic. I, I'm still blushing about Deakins. It's, with Deakins, I th- it's the fact that people will say, oh, you can't shoot that way in this kind of conditions. And he'll go, really? Watch me. Boom. Does it. I mean, I remember like when loads of directors are saying, oh, digital doesn't give you like the, the clarity and perfection that you need on a shot. And then he goes and makes Skyfall. And it's like, yeah, this is the best looking Bond film. Oh, so uh, it's not just that digital lets things down. It's that people don't know how to use it. Deakins knows how to use every tool. He paints with light. He really does. He's a brilliant cinematographer. And just his involvement in a project with anyone instantly lifts it somewhat. But working with um, a master of coordinating things like Villeneuve, Deakins and Villeneuve is the perfect double whammy as far as I'm concerned. And... I am so glad that you recommended this film to me because it is now within my top films of all time. Fantastic. Check out the sequel. It, it is worth it. Don't feel it diminishes anything that the first film does, which can often be the, the problems of a, of a sequel after such a great classic film. But it is worth it, and it, it does extend the storyline and extend the characters. Okay, so next week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to shake it up. I am going to give you a year of your, of your classic Oscar film. And I want I want to pick a film from that year that you need to watch. And we talked about this before we came on air. And I'm going to give you the year of my birth, which why not? Uh, which is 1963. And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the Manchurian Candidate, starring Frank Sinatra, directed by John Frankenheimer, because I think it is a fantastic film. And to some extent, even though there has been a, a remake that starred Denzel Washington, it still feels in this day and age, this politically charged day and age, that it feels relevant. So your film for next week, Andy, is The Manchurian Candidate. Fantastic. I- I'm aware of this film more through the remake. 1963, I mean, I- I've seen some of the top films of that year i mean Lawrence of arabia third man of alcatraz whatever happened to baby jane are ones that i've watched over the past year so this is a, a year that i'm slowly filling those gaps in so this is going to help plug uh, quite a few of the award nominations from that year by the looks of it yeah it's an interesting year it's a, it's the start of the new hollywood i i think that back in films like this that, that yeah. started to change how we saw um how we saw cinema and we started to move into that what we now call away from classic hollywood into into new hollywood Okay, so uh, we've not been to the cinema this week because, unfortunately, there's not a lot we can see. We're now in a sort of newish lockdown in, in anything but name only. But Andy has got a film for you to review, and it's one of our Netflix films. So, Andy, tell us what we've got. So this was one that we put forwards last week as something to watch out for because it was dropping, and that's Enola Holmes. Enola. Who are you? She's your sister. Enola. Her mind, sharp as a tack. 
Tell me who she is. You know that. Enola. Enola. Tis I. It's adapted from the book series by Nancy Springer and tells of the 16-year-old Enola Holmes, the youngest sibling of the Holmes family. She's been raised to be free-spirited, strong-willed and boundary-pushing by her mother, Udoria. She's intelligent, insightful, and she's been trained in strategy and martial arts. However, on her 16th birthday, she awakens to find that her mother's vanished, leaving behind some mysterious gifts. She meets her brothers, Sherlock and Mycroft, at the station. And Mycroft, on the discovery that not only has the mother gone missing and that Enola's not had a formal education, he's really upset at the living conditions of the old estate, so sets about putting her into a finishing school to um, make her more of a lady. Sherlock, however, is more intrigued by the girl and sees a kind of likeness of spirit within her. However, Enola flees and sets off following the cryptic clues that her mother's left to track her down and along the way encounters the young Viscount Tewkesbury, who, it appears, has a pedal of his own going on. Thrills, adventure, mystery, all present. This film is an absolute joy to watch. It's a family-friendly, Sherlock Holmes-inspired adventure tale. And I can't recommend it enough. I sat with a beaming grin on my face for most of the film. And a lot of that comes from Millie Bobby Brown. She is a tawdry force, isn't she? She is, 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 is a, a very young actor, has created this this enterprise around her, this, this industry, you know, from, from her parents moving to the States just so she could get an opportunity to, to get into Hollywood uh, yeah. at a very young age. She has, is, is, has become this, this uh, centre of the storm that, that surrounds her. It's a remarkable career. She was more or less introduced to the world through Stranger Things, but she didn't really get to show a lot of dynamic range within that because she's basically quite quiet, an angry faced a lot of the time. Still a standout character within that series. But in here, she she's front and centre. She is the lead and she is... She's also a producer on it, isn't she? Yeah, witty, charming. She's got such energy and vibrancy on screen. Her comic timing balances well with the dramatical leanings of the script. And the film uses fourth wall breaking moments of her looking to us as an audience to complement the voiceover aspect that right. is there when it's basically nods and winks to her as us as she's like basically saying, you know what's going to happen here, don't you? Before something happens. Brilliant stuff. It, if it hadn't have been done so deftly, it would have felt, oh, that's a bit cheap. But the way that it's put in there, it feels very fluid and natural to the story. Henry Cavill, oh man. What a great interpretation of Holmes we've got. You watch his mannerisms when you get around to watching it. Watch how his eyes are always taking in every detail around him. You don't see him act on a lot of things, but you know from the way that he stood that he's he's really analysing every moment. He's deciphering the world around him like we know Sherlock to do. But there's also a touch of heart to this version of Sherlock, which apparently has caused a bit of an um, up. That's right. Well, the Conan Doyle estate filed a lawsuit <laughs> against Netflix, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, claiming yep. it violates copyright by depicting Holmes as having emotions, an aspect yep. of the character which they argued does not fall under the public domain, as he was only described as having emotions in stories published between 1923 to 1927, and the copyright of the stories published in that period, in fact, still belong to the estate. So, yeah, it might have caused upset, but I wouldn't say the way that they depicted it. The way that they explained it when they were taking legal action, it felt as though it was going to be like, oh, he's all like hugs and kisses. And he's not. He's still very stoic in nature. 
They're just a little wry smile. And you could look at it as emotion or you could look at it as him just recognising an Enola part of himself. And that's the way that I think that it's more supposed to be interpreted, is that he sees a likened spirit, a kindred with her, which he doesn't see with his brother Mycroft, who is basically the polar opposite of him. Excellent. Now, I've got a, a young child. Do you think it's the sort of film for kids, or is it mainly uh, young adults, or is it uh, an older an older audience? I think that this is a good family adventure film. I feel that you can watch it with youngsters. There's nothing nothing gratuitous in any of it. It's it's clearly aimed towards the young adult audience, but it's got more like a an 80s family adventure kind of feel to it. So, yeah, I, I'd say it'd be fine for... Pretty much sitting with all ages. At the at the most, it'd be a rated a twelve A. Fantastic. Well, based on that recommendation, that's what we're watching as a family this week. That's a family night. That's our family night. Okay, for me, uh, I watched Into the Night, a Belgian apocalyptical sci-fi drama thriller created by Jason George, inspired by a 2015 science fiction novel. Uh, premiered back in May on on Netflix. I'm several episodes in, and I can tell you that it's a really, really good watch. So the premise is um, a group of passengers on a hijacked plane, uh, which is a red-eye flight from Brussels to, to Moscow, a hijacked by an Italian NATO soldier, forces his way into the commercial aircraft, demands a takeoff, and basically discovers that, that there is a global event that results from exposure to sunlight, and it's killing thousands of people. So the plane heads west and attempts to survive this catastrophe that's killing all living organisms during daylight hours and they must keep flying out, even though uh, with fuel shortage, irradiated food, hidden agendas and other problems, they keep have to fly, as the title suggests, into the night to avoid daylight. It's a cracking little series. The only thing that held it back for me was that it was dubbed. It was Belgium's first original series for Netflix, but it, and it's been yeah. redubbed. But once you get over that, once you fall into the pattern, I think you have to do with, with most of films. It's a really clever idea. And, and as the series grows, the, the first episode is a little cliched. It feels a little bit like Lost, but as, the, as it grows, it becomes more and more interesting uh, uh, and more and more, uh, uh, more and more tense. It really is one of those tense series as to where it goes. It's only six episodes. They're only 30-odd minutes long. So you can really sit down and, uh, and give it a, a, a blast one evening and not feel as though it's eaten into your time. Excellent. Enjoy it. I'd like to know your thoughts. Sounds like my kind of sci-fi. It is. It's right up your street. I was thinking that while I was watching it, Andy. It sounds familiar to other things that have done a similar kind of approach, but yeah, I'll check this out and I'll let you know. And another film that I've seen this week, and this one has been getting a lot of buzz around it, and there's also talk that it might get a limited cinema release just in time for Halloween, and that's Host on Shudder. I wish I'd got Shudder. It's just one of those other services that I don't think I need to pay for. If you're listening, uh, Shudder, Please sponsor us. <laughs> oh, if, if they sponsor us, we will gladly talk about all of their new films every time that they release. Host, if you're not aware, it's a short horror film that's been made during the lockdown. I have heard of it. And much as The Father of Bride 3 that we were talking about earlier said that there was something that will play into this kind of thing. And this is the film that I'm talking about. It plays all the tropes and shticks of films such as the Paranormal Activity series. But it, the freshness and uniqueness of it is the way in which it's been made. Right. So basically, the story is, during the COVID lockdown, a group of friends have been setting up regular Zoom chats. Haven't we all? And for one of the weeks, one of them decides that they want to do a seance. And so they hire a medium to join the Zoom chat. The medium tells them to take it seriously. 
but the group begin to see interruptions as one of the members of the group has to leave the circle because his his fiance is mucking around and then followed by another feeling of presence who she believed is someone called jack but nothing is quite as it seems and then the medium suddenly and mysteriously gets cut off and that's when things start to ramp up. Ooh, I'm liking the sound of that. Something has joined them on the chat. It's 57 minutes long. Perfect. Which is safe to say it doesn't outstay its welcome. And the neat touch is it uses the limited free Zoom call time as being the framing device for the sudden cutoff that you get at the end. Because every one of these found footage films has a sudden cutoff that you're like, well, why did it end there? This, it actually does that you have five minutes left on your Zoom if you wish to extend it. All the Zoom pop-ups that you would normally get appear on there. The starting moments of the film is just casual chat between the groups about lockdown life, not being able to cough these days, joking about like the situations of, oh, I smell bad because I'm stuck in the house, etc. It strikes a familiar chord and grounds the film. We've all had very similar Zoom chats and we can all relate to it. So within the first 10 minutes before the Zoom chat starts fully, you're already sold that this feels real. And then the use of Zoom technology throughout the film the border, once the Zoom chat starts, the bordering is the Zoom bordering that you get on a PC. Yeah. And every now and then, in order to like, oh, God, did you hear that? Oh, I'll enhance the sound, hold on, and go into the settings and enhance the audio pickup on someone's channel. And it uses Zoom perfectly. And this is because they filmed it using Zoom. Right. It was genuinely made in the style that you can see. The filming was all done remotely because the lockdown meant that they couldn't get together. Rob Savage, the director, talked through every member of the cast remotely on setting up their own lighting for shots and how they're going to set up their stunts. So every member of the cast was responsible for sorting out their own effects work and their own cinematography, basically. It sounds like one of those ideas that you kick yourself that you never had. Yeah, it's it's such a unique idea. Every, every now and then you'll get someone saying, oh, found footage films, like, oh, they're, they're so cliche now. Oh, there's nothing new they can do with them. They should stop doing them. And then someone comes along and does something different. And this is the most original use of found footage that there's been since the Blair Witch Project. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued now. I'm, I might have to do the uh, week-long free uh, registration and see if free I can trial. It. Hey, it's almost October. Might as well do that on, yeah, on October to end. Wait till Halloween. To chill yourself. But yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. It is in the top tier of found footage horrors and it genuinely, you can look at it from a filmmaking perspective and go, wow, that's impressive how they've done that. But you look at it, for, if you just watch it with the lights off late at night, you will be chilled to the bone. It's proper chilling horror. Excellent. And very topical. Brilliant film. Cool. Okay, well, that's it for this week. But before we wrap up, Andy and I always uh, I will tell you about what we've enjoyed, either reading, watching, playing, you know, just something neat. So Andy, do you have uh, a neat thing for this week? I've got three little streaming service movies to watch out for. So Sky Movies or Now TV, I've got Judy this week. Rennie Zellweger plays Judy Garland in the biopic that looks at the time of her life when she came over to Britain to do stage shows. And you watch this film and you know straight away why she got the Oscar. She is marvellous in it. Definitely worth checking out. Netflix have Early Man, the Nick Park Ardman oh, film. fantastic film. Which sees the Bronze Age Society invading the Stone Age hunters who then challenge them to a, a football match in order to win back the land. Fun. Exactly what you expect from Nick Park and the guys. And Amazon have Queen and Slim, which is a film that passed both of us by when it got released earlier it this did. year. And I've been, uh, I've been meaning to try and catch that. So that's one to grab on Amazon. Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith have a first date that goes tragically wrong when they're stopped by the police and the situation escalates. Labelled as cop killers, they go on the run. Excellent. Okay, mine is, is thankfully down to you. 
you know, when it gets to the time, Andy always goes just before we start recording, what's your neat thing? And I'm either scrambling to try and pull something together. And, and this time I got like three or four, which I'm going, oh, which, well, I could always save one till next week. Um, and this is a game. Um, we talked about it, Andy mentioned it way back in an early episode. Uh, by the lovely people at Big Potato Games. It's Rolling Stone, a music and trivia game. I did that thing that I've not done for so long. I went out to a friend's house for dinner party. We were finished by 10 o'clock, and there were only four of us, in case you are, uh, you, were, you were watching. Uh, and we played this, played this after dinner, and it is fantastic. Andy, talk us through the game, because you played it more than, uh, more than I ever know it better than I do. So Big Potato Games are absolute experts in their field at creating fun party games that are simple in concept and play out so well. They're responsible for the Blockbuster game. Which I've got and still not played. Then they adapted that whole idea for a music-based game. And how it works is that you're split into teams. And for each round, the round starts off with a head-to-head where you're drawn over a topic. So it might be music about love. And you have to say films with love somewhere in the in the song lyrics. So love is all around. And then it goes to the next person. They've got a 15-second timer. Uh, love is in the air. And you, you, you're encouraged to sing the line yes, as well, which adds to a bit of fun, especially when people know what the song is but can't remember how it goes. <laughs> Once someone fails to answer within the 15 seconds, the person who won that setup draws six cards, which will be themes of 1970s music, 1960s music, rock and roll, etc., etc. And you look at the, the bands which are listed on there and you decide three that you think you can describe to your team by way of a line of lyrics, you humming a tune. Hum a tune, can't you? And then one word. Or one word. And you place them down on the relevant slots on the board in front of you for the one word, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have 30 seconds to get your team to guess each of them. Yep. Any that aren't guessed, the other team can try to guess if they can get all of theirs done in their 30 seconds. If you manage to get, if you're the first team to go and you complete yours and you've still got time left, you can start taking cards off the other side of the table and try to steal some points before they get a chance to go. It's fun and even if you don't know anything about music, it makes no difference. It, th- the great thing about this and Blockbuster is that you could be an expert on the topic. Yeah. But you are relying not only on the knowledge base of the people who are on your team, but also you're relying on being able to communicate with the people on your team. And you've got to try to get on the same wavelength. And it's great. It, it's ideal for... You played it with four. We've played it with eight. But it's one of those games that the more people that are there, the more chaotic it can get. Absolutely fantastic. We loved it. A, because we won. Um, but it, it, it felt a little bit hard at first. But once we got into it, and, and no pun intended, once we got rolling with it, it, it was just it was just a gas. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And especially, you know, if you're playing against someone who's got a similar musical knowledge. And we had we, we just had a gas with it. Absolutely loved it. I've, as I said before, I got the Blockbuster game for Christmas and because of lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, never had a chance to play it. That's the next one up. But we, we borrowed this off you. In fact, we enjoyed it so much, we're going to get ourselves our own copy of it. You played the Rolling Stone, which is the US version of it. It finally got a license for the UK and it's called Top of the Pops. Of course it is. Of course it is. And you get free kazoos which, in the British version. I know that made you very happy. <laughs> it made me amazingly happy. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. We enjoyed delivering it for you. We'll be back with a bit of look next week. Same movie time, same movie channel. Uh, Andy, it's been a gas. It's always a gas. In fact, I'm going to turn the gas off. But Andy, you'll not survive here. You're not a wolf. This is the last. Yeah.